Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Today's Pod the Lab topic is worms. Um, now that we've got Pat, we, we might move into, um, into identification and, and polychaetes and marine, um, marine worms. Um, Alistair, you're more than welcome to stay on if you, if you have time, but um, if you don't, I um, totally understand as well. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm happy to listen, to listen for a bit. I'm also happy if anyone wants to fire questions to me by email. That's all good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, one of the questions that came up in the chat, which probably goes to, to both of you, is are there any species that are really distributed around the world? Pat, did you want to jump in? Because that kind of relates to your, okay. your lecture. Um, well, okay. Basically, um, there are some species that have been, that are found around the world, but in those cases, they've actually been introduced. They've been transported around the, around the world on the bottoms of ships um, as hull fouling. Um, there are others that are pelagic species, and some of those seem to have wide distributions. Um, I think, but the basic basic premise should be um, all species have restricted distributions unless proven otherwise. So would you classify those species then, um, they're, they're invasive species, the ones that have been introduced. Um, have they become major pests? Yeah. yeah. In some cases, they have. In other cases, they haven't, or we still don't know. Um, but also, a lot of a lot of animals have been introduced, say, with the aquaculture industry. Um, we recently had um, an example where we had this. We were describing a new species of bloodworm from uh, France. Anyhow, we gave this paper at a conference, and a Japanese worker said, "Look, it looks very similar. The, the, the sequences look very similar to what we have in Japan." So we asked them to send us some specimens. And yes, it was the same species. And so we thought, how does a species get from Japan to France? Anyhow, so then we delved into the history because the species in France lives in amongst oysters. In 1970 or the late 60s, there was a massive die-off of oysters in the west coast of France. And so they imported oysters from Japan. And we're suggesting that... Um, Small worms came in with the um, live oysters, you know, in mud, sort of in between the oysters. So um, at this stage, we we don't um, we don't think it's being particularly destructive in in France, um, but in a lot of cases, we just don't know. But there are certainly some of those are invasive and are cause major problems. Some of the hull fouling ones can block intake pipes to own uh, power stations. Um, and also, there's also a whole suite that go in with, um, also associated with oysters, and they can really deform the the shell of the of the oyster, and so it it's not as as marketable. Um, so that's there's been a lot of work being done on that at the moment. Um, is there a specimen that's been the the most unusual, fascinating for you in your career? Is something that's really stood out for you? Well, I'm biased because I happen to like my family, the Terrabellids. So there's a recent, um, uh, we we had a two-week workshop at Lizard Island uh, in 2013 and 2015. We published the results and it's, I can send somebody a photo. Um, it's a wonderful um, image. Can you see that photo? 
it's it's a live specimen um, taken at Lizard. It's on the front of Zoo Taxa. Um, I think that's spectacular personally, but I perhaps other people have different opinions. Um, but uh, look, I think all worms. Um, I I don't think I have. I don't think I can give an individual example. Well, I have a favourite family. Yeah. I have the Terabellids. Um, so um, they're quite. They can be quite common in places. But in, increasingly, around increasingly, back in the fifties and sixties, a lot of polychaete workers, you know, worked on a range of families. But increasingly, people are concentrating on individual families because you really need to get to know them. You really need to sort of look at them because um, most polychaete families are distributed worldwide. Even most genera are worldwide. It's really only at the species level that we get this restricted distributions. So you have to have develop an understanding for the entire family. You mentioned um, you've, you worked at, at Lizard, which is um, the Great Barrier Reef, Northern Great Barrier Reef. You work with people in Japan. You work in specimens in France. Working in a museum as um, a curator and a, a taxonomist, that takes you all over the world, right? Yeah, and I think while we love to visit museums and look at their collections, I think, um, you know, uh, more recently with COVID um, and financial restrictions, we're doing a lot more by the internet. So I've recently compiled a big volume on the diversity of, of annelids and I think we had 46 authors from around the world and the internet has allowed that to happen. But um, those we have conferences every three years. And once you, when you go to those conferences, you know, just it's specialised just on polychaetes or, um, and polychaetes now include the earthworms and the, the earthworms and the leeches and the cypunculans and the echoids. Um, you get to know people. And once you know somebody, it's really so much easier to have an internet, uh, uh, you know, an email connection with them. But you need to make, you need to find, learn to trust that person and respect them. And then it's really much easier to work with them. But yes, I work with people all around the world. Uh, we have a question from one of the students here, Pat. Is there any evidence that worms are shifting their distribution in response to warming temperatures? I think there is some evidence. Um, we have looked at museum records along the east coast of Australia. Um, the problem is that sometimes you really need targeted surveys to find that out. But there is, there is worms have very discrete, um, when, when you say they have discrete distributions, that's related to the salinity, to the temperature, to the environment. And I, I am sure that worms are moving together with climate change as water gets warmer. Um, everyone, Alistair, pop that picture from Zootaxa in the chat. If you click on that, you'll be able to open it. Oh, good. Thank Thanks, Alistair. Yeah. The whole volume is um, open access. Yeah, is that the one you were so that's in It's a beautiful image. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's two th Yeah, it's a beautiful We took a um, – we had a Russian um, photographer with us, and he normally worked in the White Sea, and he thought diving on Lizard Island was wonderful. But going back to that question you asked me, Tracy, was that there were 18 of us at that workshop and we got to know one another over two weeks. And I think all of us have continued to work together. So that inter personal interaction is so important. I've, I've got a question for you, Pat. You mentioned in your lecture that obviously there are still a lot of polychaetes yet to be described uh, and the number of described species is constantly going up. Where would you say from a biogeographical perspective in Australia is the big frontier uh, for species still to be discovered? 
Okay. Um, certainly parts of northern Australia, but it's really below, say, 30 metres. And um, as you go into deeper water, and we recently have published a paper on the fauna um, in the abyss off the east coast of Australia. And, you know, a large proportion of those species are undescribed. So it's really in those sorts of habitats. So I'd say the deep water. Um, uh, we certainly, in our issue on diversity recently, um, everybody for their families looked at where the distributions were lacking around the world. And there are some major gaps, Southeast Asia, um, parts of the Indian Ocean. There's lots of areas. And remember that here in Australia, um, we didn't have anybody dedicated to working on polychaetes until 1970. So, you know, you really need, once you get a person there and they can attract students, then you can start developing, um, describing the fauna. That's a good point, Alistair, about climate change. Yeah, so obviously people have started to map, you know, global distributions of earthworms and they're often linked to climatic variables. So if you've got an organism that's so important for for soil fertility and ecosystem functions, and you've got that organism's distribution relating to temperature, then it stands to reason that any shifts in you know temperature regimes or extreme temperatures is likely to make it have a big influence on, on ecosystem function. So both in the ocean and on land, we would expect to see those sorts of changes. I think also the the polychaetes tend to occupy a lot of the benthic communities and they have short, relatively short lifespans. So those animals are really going to illustrate or demonstrate changes much quicker than the larger, larger bodied animals that live for many years. So I think a lot of monitoring should be being done on those, on these invertebrate things, species. Um, have any of your students, have you guys got any more questions um, for Pat on polychaetes or? or anything in general about even careers and um, and the kind of jobs that you can take this information you learn through this course into, feel free to pop any questions you have in the chat and, um, and we'll do our best to answer them. I, I might sneak one more question in for Pat. Yeah, uh, so no, another point Thanks, you mentioned in, in your lecture is that uh, obviously you've got lumping being a big issue. Uh, in in polychaetic taxonomy with uh, what are actually disparate species from around the world being lumped into one species. Do you also get cases where there's the opposite and you have a lot of splitting where you have, say, perhaps a naturally uh, morphologically variable species that you end up getting, you know, 10 or 20 synonyms or is it mostly the lumping that's more common? I think the lumping is more common, but there's certainly, I mean, I think one also has to be aware that within a species there is, can be some variation. So, again, you need to try and have um, a few animals or a range of animals to look at um, to try and find out where their real, where their real distribution lies. Um, but, that, but that splitting of species, I think, is also common in a lot of other marine invertebrate groups. It's not just the polychaetes. And we're not just splitters. Um, you know, explain to me why a species that's been recorded from, you know, north west, uh, um, from Norway should occur in Australia. I mean, just think of the habitat, the temperatures. Um, and, in fact, um, it's been found to be um, that species. It's really only restricted to, to a field in, um, in Norway. And something like another 36 species of that genus have been recently described. Some of them, at the moment, only known from molecular. 
Hey, Pat, when the students are out, yep. you know, back in nature again and, and snorkeling and, and exploring marine environment, what should they look out for in terms of spotting polychaetes and, and identifying them and, and recognising them in um, That's an interesting question. I've actually run a few dive courses where you actually train students to look, you know, because they say, oh, the bottom just looks as though nothing's happening. you just got to sit and watch and then you can actually see it moving um, because the small animals are coming out, they're putting their fans out. It's really a question of getting your eye in, you know, forget the fish and the, you know, the going past. Um, Look at, Really look down at the bottom of the of the ocean floor and see what's going on, and you'd be amazed to see how much you can actually see. Perhaps turn over a rock, but put it back afterwards, and you'll see. You know, you just have to get your eye in. Um, I think um, there is uh, certainly. Uh, we had an interesting um, experience when Maria and I were at the workshop at Lizard Island. Everyone else in the group could hear us underwater when we got excited, when we saw a worm that we wanted to collect. You know, we were actually talking through our regulators. And they said, okay, Pat's found a worm. Off she goes, you know, with my little hammer and chisel to get this worm out of the out of the base of the coral. Um, so, yes, um, perhaps go with someone that's got a bit more experience than you have. Um, but just, just, just stop. Don't race around. Just sit on the bottom, just calm down, take some deep breaths and just watch what's going on on the bottom. That's all I can say. There's nothing like diving with scientists who realise how much people can talk underwater. <laughs> or get excited, yes. Yeah. Forget the fish could um, be the so, motto for the course. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. But, I mean, obviously fish, you know, and the fish, you know, quite like to eat worms. Um. Can I go back to this, um, as we seem to have a bit of a, a gap here, um, I'm hoping some of you might take advantages of coming into the museum when we reopen and perhaps talk to some of us. Um, there's a group of us working on polychaetes at the Australian Museum and find out that, you know, we are available to help you to help identify your animals. I mean, you know, we're not, we're not going to do all your work for you but we'd like to show you, direct you to where you can get some ideas, um, where you can get your identifications. And then when you've finished your studies, make sure you deposit some vouchers at the Australian Museum or, or any other nearby museum, because that's how we can find out where those species are occurring, by having vouchers. And it's not just, you know, we just don't want a pot of... So I was going to say, I remember the field trip at Chowder Bay a couple of years back and someone had pulled a, a big polychaete out from um, in Chowder Bay in Sydney and you end up taking that back to the museum. That's good. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, but I mean, what I'm saying, we also, you need to, you know, um, talk to our collection managers. He doesn't want bucket loads of worms. Mm-hmm. He wants them in individual vials with proper labels and, and date of collecting and, you know, exactly where they were collected from. And, you know, we don't want all your animals, but just a, a selection of those animals would be really useful. I mean, I think Alistair is well aware of the importance of museum collections um, in his work. Um, I hear someone's got some um, good identification apps. We're currently working on an identification app. Uh, we'll be loading, uploading families as we finish them. Um, COVID hasn't actually helped this exercise, um, but we've been using a program called Delta um, and we'll be do- putting up families as, as they come up. There's already a CD available. I think there's a couple of couple of um, CDs in biology at, at New South Wales. Um, it was produced, you know, back in the early 2000s. 
so it's uh, a bit out of date. Um, but, yeah, we, we're trying to do these identification apps. And we were hoping at the AMSA conference, um, which was held in July, that we would have had an associated workshop to teach people how to identify worms. Um, but we just couldn't see how we could do that through COVID. Um, everyone, Alistair also just posted that bees are introducing a work integrated learning subject, which has opportunities for uh, the students to visit research partners. So keep an eye keep an eye out um, for that and for any more information. Yeah, so, so right across the science faculty, we're introducing new opportunities for undergraduate students to do uh, you know, a piece of work at, a, at, at an outside organisation, whether that's an industry, you know, industry. Um, for students in bees, most, a lot of our partners are, are places like the museum and the botanic gardens and, and uh, state government environment departments. Uh, so we'll, we've got a whole series of sort of natural partners where we'll look to, to trying to find opportunities for students to come and do a little bit of work at, at you know outside of the university um so that's will be advertised relatively soon and, and uh probably starting t1 2022 um so pat for your information this is not like a complete independent research project it it's just you can actually just have a student do some work so that they learn the ways in which science works at at other organizations and so they don't need to be independent you know projects from start to finish they can just be examples of of uh, you know, doing science work. Um, so we will we'll talk to a bunch of our you know close colleagues at the museum to to seek some opportunities there. That would be excellent, Alistair. I mean, I think if people understand the value of our collections, you know, and how we database them and then how that information is uploaded into ALA and things, um, you know, I think we need to have far more contact between museums and universities. Because you know you've got your, as it were, training the next potential generation of some some of the taxonomists or people that can go and work at fisheries, people who are working on invasive species. Um, so yeah, I think that's excellent. Yeah. And I know that, that um, Chris, we Chris know that Olga it, will be really enthusiastic. Enthusiastic. Yeah, okay, we'll be in touch with that, but it's it's soon. It's just going through the final stages of course approval at the moment. So we'll be excited to announce that fairly soon to the undergrad students. Hopefully some of you listening will be interested in those opportunities. Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.